and then you do your backups the way you do your backups, right? You back them up to death. <laughs> that's my new that's my new slogan. Back it up to death. Back it up to death. <laughs> back them up to death. Back them up to death, man. Like your like your very life depended on it. You could restore it all. And rescue me from You had my fallen You How Welcome to the Backup Central Restore It All podcast. I'm W. Curtis Preston, aka Mr. Backup, and with me as always. Prasanna Maliandi. How's it going, Prasanna? Hey, Curtis. How are you today? I am just chilling here in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, we're going to get to our special guest here in just a second. just want to remind our listeners that uh, although Prasanna and I both work at Druva, this is not a Druva podcast, and the opinions that you hear are our own. And also, I want to give a shout out to our listeners. If you would like to talk about your backup environment, whether you've got a scary you know, a scary story when things went haywire or a funny story, or just, you just want to talk about your backup problems. We'll just be your backup counselors. Uh, We'd like to invite you to come on the podcast. You can tweet me uh, at WC Preston on Twitter. I actually accept all DMs. So if you just want to DM me, that's fine. And uh, you can also write me at WCurtisPreston at gmail.com. And actually, Curtis, since it is the holiday seasons, maybe we should see if people have interesting holiday stories around backups. Halloween backup stories. <laughs> or even Christmas. <laughs> a Christmas or Thanksgiving yeah. backup stories. Yeah. The day the backup saved Christmas. Sure. Or the yeah. day that everything burned to the ground. Or right. Or the day <laughs> or the day the backup ruined Christmas, actually, is more the like day, it. The day that uh the backup tapes lasted is it, is it eight nights, uh Jeff? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. The, day, the the Hanukkah backup story, the day our restore took eight magical days. So uh, speaking of uh, our special guest here, I, a very interesting fellow, started out his life as an actor and then uh, went into IT. He's been in IT for 35 years, having uh, worked in uh, Wall Street, also worked in aerospace, which is actually where I, I got to know him. And then he's been in media entertainment for 25 years. I can't believe that. He, he's uh, worked at Disney, worked at DreamWorks, worked at CBS. Most recently, NBC Universal. Super exciting, intelligent dude to talk to, and I'm I'm excited to have him on the podcast. Welcome, Jeff Rockland. Hi, guys. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, and I'm flattered. That was a nice. Uh... You are at this point our most popular podcast. <laughs> our episode uh, that you were on, for some reason, p- people really like it. Cool. I think it's that like movie side of things, acting side of things that. People enjoy. I mean, Jeff is is one of the the few people who has seen like many sides of the movies. You know, you're like me, Jeff. You're also you're a fellow lover of movies, but you've also you you know, but but you will agree that once you've seen the other side, they're never quite the same, right? Very true. Once I started to learn about how visual effects and all were made, I have never been able to watch a movie again the same way. <laughs> You always see things like those, those matte lines don't look good. And you're like, oh, who cares? Just enjoy the movie. Jeff, quick question for you. Favorite movie of all time? Oh, that's tough. One of the best films, I think, of all time is Lawrence of Arabia. It's a beautiful film. Uh, it's grand scale. 70 millimeter, Amazing right? story. Great performances. Yes. Yes. Yeah. David Lean. Just about anything David Lean did was terrific. But yeah, definitely um, the one, one of the ones that goes to the desert island. 
where I won't have any place to plug in the projector and watch it. <laughs> yeah, I I uh, I saw that uh, in the re- you know they re-released it a while back, and I saw that in the theaters, and that was amazing. There's just something about movies from that era that you can't that you don't get today. You know, like I don't know what it is, like the colors, the way it's filmed, everything put together. Yeah, you had to go out and do it, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> David Lean spent months in the Arabian Desert filming, you know, on these vast, amazing uh, landscapes under really, really difficult conditions, and now they just fix it in post. Yeah, they take it to a computer room where a bunch of guys are sitting around in the dark, yeah. in front of their computer monitors, and they recreate. Yeah, like all this, just the the, uh, the it was a little extra cloudy that day, so let's just adjust the coloring and the lights and. Yeah, I was in a what do you call it? It was it was an art exhibit, like outdoor art exhibit uh, in San Francisco, and I came upon this this one particular exhibitor, and and they were they were photographs, right? And the, he you know he'd blown them up, and, and and they were framed, and they were beautiful, and and I, I just I was looking at it, and I was like, there's just something about your photography. I just, I can't put a finger on it, and he's like, it's film unretouched. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> oh, like, yeah. he's like, yeah. no digital cameras. This is, you know, this is film and, you know, Kodak, yeah. you know, and, uh, and that stuff mattered, right? I mean, cinematographers had to worry about the exact emulsion of the film they were using and how it was going to be developed and and how the light played against it, you know, so that you got different grain for different effects. It was it was complicated. It was definitely more uh, feels to me, and I'm I'm not really it's not really fair to say it, but it was more of an art uh, when it was still chemical than it is when it's more digital. Yeah, I mean, we can do, and you know, we're going to be talking about the, all the storage that all this generates, right? We we, we can mm-hmm. do amazing things with a red camera the fact that you have this all digital image that you can then you know create a a dragon out of nowhere or a person you can person out of nowhere i don't know what do you think jeff how long before we get fully photorealistic actors that our eyes won't notice what do you think it already exists man you are you're already but my eyes kind of notice it at this point right like Um, what's your example of of uh, you know, I, I will use the most recent case of it is probably Gemini Man. I will use that as a, a case where uh, the, the young Will Smith is photorealistic and it's good enough. I, I think that the, the ability to create photorealistic humans that have jumped the what they call the uncanny valley, uh-huh. right, which is that feeling you get when you look at something and it just doesn't feel right, even if it looks right, right probably goes back to Lord of the Rings. There's just been the ability to do photorealistic animation has gotten so good, uh, probably also because the processing capability has gotten so cheap that you could throw a lot at it. Oh, right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. The underlying hardware got really inexpensive. So all of a sudden you can, you know, you carry a supercomputer in your pocket nowadays, right? But I I would say that at this point in time, with the right crew and the right set of artists, you can do completely photorealistic humans and they would have a really hard time identifying them or get the creeps from them. One more example, really, really good example of, I would say, when we finally got past the Uncanny Valley, and that was, go back and look at the uh, the recent Planet of the Apes movies. Oh, they're amazing. In San Francisco, 
and look at the, you know, Caesar and all of those characters, those are all completely computer generated. I remember, I'm a member of, of the Visual Effects Society and we were voting on effects one year. And one of the scenes that was given to us to look at was this close-up shot that comes off of Caesar's eyes and pulls back to a full face mm-hmm. and staring into those eyes, right? Which is the point where the uncanny valley always got you because you'd look at the eyes and the eyes would be dead. And you would never know it. You'd look at that, you'd say, no, I'm looking at something that is definitely real and something that's alive and has feelings and all of that. So yeah, the, we've, the visual effects guys out there, kudos to them. They've really gotten good at this. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. And, and, and so let's sort of segue that into the result of all of that power, all of that cheap computing power and all of the things like red cameras that produce ridiculous numbers of gigabytes of data in a, in a day. Gigabytes. Gigabytes. Terabytes. Funny. Yeah, it's said ridiculous numbers of gigabytes. Are terabytes not composed of gigabytes? Yeah, yeah, all right, right. All right. Sure. So uh, is is that you you have this, the, you know, specifically the, the entertainment industry has, I, I think, a very unique both storage challenge as well as a, as a data protection challenge. I guess if you had a magic wand, this is, this is kind of where I wanted to go with this episode. So you don't have an unlimited budget, but, but you have a greenfield environment. You're starting a new studio. Yeah. You got Peter Jackson filming a film and he's, he's got 36 red cameras. <laughs> that's, that's how many reds he owns, right? And, and he, you know how many terabytes he's going to produce each day of, of video. And then you know you, you, because of your background, you know all of the stuff that's going to go on after all that data shows up. And then all the downstream processing and then the long-term archive. And all the way along there, we got to protect this. And the rest, not just the, not just the video data, but also all of your, you know, you're a business. Yeah. Right. So you get all yep. that. Stuff. So oh, yeah. if, you, if you were doing this from scratch. In, in today's world, you have to build for hybrid. Right. Um, I don't know that you can do all of this in the cloud right. by itself. I don't know if you want to do all of this in the cloud by itself. You need to ask yourself, is this appropriate for the cloud? The cloud isn't for everything. Right. So, right. yeah. And, but, but there are, but there are things that the cloud are really, really good for here. Yeah. So, so, the, so the first thing to remember about this, and it's, it's still kind of true in the process is that you don't really work on the entire movie all at the same time. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, making movies is very much an assembly line kind of function. Once you go into your, your principal photography and you shoot all of the, the, the plates, what they're called, mm-hmm. right? The stuff where you take a camera out in the field and you yeah. shoot actors and you shoot backgrounds and all of that stuff and you ingest it into the, into the systems, you're really only working on one scene at a time. So you may think you need to have petabytes of storage sitting there available for you to work on the movie, but you probably can get away with a couple hundred terabytes. There's a couple of things that happen, and this is kind of traditional in the business, right? You you shoot the movie, and then the negative would be converted to digital, right? So if you shot on film, somebody would take that to a, a lab like a Technicolor or Deluxe or someplace like that, uh, DNEG, and they would in, they would scan the film, and they would make it digital. 
then somebody gives you either a medium resolution or even maybe a lower resolution copy of that negative to start editing with, right? To start playing with for doing your, your rough visual effects and things like that. Much like it used to be in the movie days where they create what are called answer prints, right? They take a physical copy of the negative and they would make a copy of it for them to give to the editor who could play with cutting on it and experiment with it. That's not the final copy. Right, it's a it's a lower uh, lower quality copy, and it doesn't matter if it gets scratched because in the end they're going to go back to the originals to to do that. And then the stuff that you're not working on at any given point in time is either stored offline or nearline, right, somewhere like that, or it's if it's physical material, it's sitting in a vault somewhere where it's protected. Okay, so I would have probably there'd probably be two or three scenes online at any given point mm-hmm. in time and even then they're working their way through different departments right because one group is working on maybe color uh one group is working on animating characters one group is working on the effects animation that goes into it and it and it literally it moves like an assembly line uh like manufacturing a car and then comes out at the far end as as a film when we were making animated movies back at disney we literally had a pipeline of content would come in, it would go through the different departments. At the completion of each department, we took the, 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 the content offline, burned it off either to archival disks or put it onto some kind of storage system and held it there until the next department needed it. Then we'd bring it back online, let them use it. When they were done, we'd pull it away from them. Partly it was because we wanted to not overly expand the capacity of the studio. Um, and partly it was because if you don't take something away from an artist, they will work on it until, right. It's, there's a, there's an expression called CBBs, right. When it's, when you're done with the shot, it goes into the CBB pile and CBB is could be better. <laughs> and they will burn every penny that they possibly can trying to hit that perfection and, and still never feel like they got there. This could be a large amount of data. So there must've been like mm-hmm. just the cost of moving things back and forth must have taken time, right? Yeah. There were whole whole departments that just took care of that. Yeah. We had we had departments at all of all of the studios we call them data wranglers or <laughs> you know or and their job would be to make sure that data was moved into the place it needed to be moved into so that it could be used properly, whether it's pulling it from offline or dropping it into a department folder so that they can work on it or moving it off into the render farm so that it was ready to be processed there. Yeah. So in the meantime, though, you also have to protect all the work you're doing along the way, right? So the v, the VFX, the all of the other things that you do to that how do you protect that stuff or is that or is that that's probably a lot easier right yeah you use you 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 typically use the same standard tools that that would you would use for any backup right the difference is what level of granularity inside the data you want to back up so so if i were building a studio from scratch right i'd find myself a nice safe data center probably at Ecolo, though there are certain parts of the process that are um, latency dependent, right? Because you're because you're obviously you're working with high data transfer rates, and so for latency reasons, you may need to put some of your your storage and processing local. One of the things we've done at at some of the studios I've worked at in the past is build into 
the the cost the uh, air quotes cost of say rendering a scene the time it takes to move the data from its central storage point to where it's going to be processed so that you could do an accurate calculation of how long the work was going to take to do right and and so i i build out a data center i would make a a deal with whether it's AWS or it's Azure or even Google, right, to do what I would call the peaks, yeah. right? Because when you're building this big infrastructure, let's take a render farm, for example, right? You you build for what you need on a day-to-day basis, but you're going to hit that, you right. can hit a point where you're not going to have enough capacity because as with any assembly line, you get to a certain point where you're coming up on the end of the run and everything starts to stack up at the back of the line and it all still needs to come out by a certain date. Traditionally, what you've been stuck doing is you've been stuck buying extra hardware that sits around and doesn't get fully utilized the way it needs to because you need to be prepared for the peak. Oh, I was just going to ask, how accurately could you actually predict the peak? Like if I think about traditional infrastructure, IT infrastructure, just trying to predict your storage growth in, say, like a year is difficult. As you're doing these rendering projects, how accurately could you predict that you can get pretty accurate because you have to remember that the data set that's running through the render farm is a given size right and the size is predictable the length of the movie and what you're actually generating right i know coming out the back end of the render farm is a 2k Mm -hmm. frame right and i may and i know how long the movie is going to be because the movie is going to be 89 minutes and i know that there Mm -hmm. are 32 frames in a second to film right so i can do the math and come up with how much i need for the final frames and then from that, depending on the complexity of what's going into it, calculate the intermediate storage that you need. But again, the intermediate storage is a is a temporary space, right? You do a bunch of stuff in it, you finish with it, and you send it off to uh, to either a backup so that you could go back to it if you want to, or you throw it away. So it's this kind of process is a lot more. I'd say predictable than a lot of business might be because in business, you know, I guess when you're working in relational databases, it's probably easier to be uh, predictive because you understand how big your records are going to be and how many you think you're going to have and that kind of thing. But, you know, if you're, if you're where, where, where it starts to get more complicated in, in the movie business is I'm going to, have to produce 4k frames in the future or 8k frames right so you're ingesting the ingestion side where you're pulling in the 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 plates that you've filmed probably become the the most unpredictable piece of it because a you don't really know how many takes you're going to shoot and how many you're going to keep and how many you're going to throw away until you're done and b you're probably going to shoot them in as high a resolution as you possibly can because today we're making movies that go to the theater in 2k and in um, in six months it'll be 4k and then two years from now it'll be 8k and you're going to want to be able to take your original material and up res it to whatever the next format of release is going to be so that the audience always gets the best possible image. I mean, they say that Ang Lee was really unhappy with the release of Gemini Man because he shot it in 4K, high resolution, high frame rate, and most movie theaters weren't capable of playing it back that way. So, So people didn't get to see the movie the way he wanted them to. So I would come up with a hybrid combination of things so that I have... I have the ability to, to burst up in the cloud, especially when it comes to things like rendering. But if you're bursting in the cloud, the the render source has to be in the cloud, right? Yes. Or can you... Yeah, from a latency perspective, it's probably better to do that. Yeah. 
and and I guess it depends also where you host your data. Like if you have a colo that happens to be on the same campus as AWS or any one of these other public clouds, your latency is usually fairly low as well. That's no, that's true. We experimented a little bit with that back in the day uh, at uh, DreamWorks uh, with one of the cloud providers. Though the biggest challenge back then, which I believe they've tackled mostly, was the licensing from the software vendors. In the early days for these big, big, you know, high-tech graphics applications, they had things built into them like geographical radius to the studio as a requirement. So you couldn't run the software on a computer (laughs) that was more than 50 miles away from the studio. Right. So how the hell do you do cloud rendering if you need the software and it needs to run in the cloud? Right. They, They seem to have worked those problems out and it's better now. But back in the day, that was one of the reasons why we couldn't just easily say, "Okay, we're going to buy, you know, 500 servers from AWS and we're going to we're going to just bring things up because we couldn't license them to do what we needed them to do. And especially now with the GPU-capable uh, instances and all the rest that yeah. Amazon and other folks offer as well, right? That probably makes it very ideal for these media rendering so applications. I, so I would have physical storage of my own to, to hold at least one copy of what I'm working on. And and you know, you and I have talked about it in the past. I'm one of those guys, and I've heard you say it on your podcast as well, that believes that if you if you love something and it's important to you and you really care about it, you want to have a physical copy of it somewhere. So I so I'm I'm one of those that would would believe that I'm going to have a master copy somewhere that I can properly protect myself and know that I have access to it and then I will I will push copies out to the places I need to go in order to do the work on it. So if I'm going to render in the cloud, I will have storage in the cloud. I will take the copy of the material I need to run against those machines, put it up in the cloud source that's closest and most performant against that as part of my my data movement process in my workflow to make sure that I could take advantage of it. And that means I could have three data centers in different parts of the country and I could do the same thing there, right? It may take, I may say it's going to take an extra 15 minutes to uh, to render a scene because it's going to take, you know, seven minutes to copy the data there and seven minutes to copy the data back to the central source. But I'll do that in order to take advantage right. of multiple sources. Backups, you know, all the tools out there nowadays are really, really good. I like a lot of the tools. I'll, I like Druva. I was uh, testing with it not that long ago. And it depends on the business you're doing and how you want to do it, right? Um, as as I, I've discovered through my experience that there has to be some piece of caching that has to be local if you're dealing with an all-cloud play. Otherwise, you're going to have that mm-hmm. long period of time uh, uh, to at least get started. But other than that, I would say that the probably the biggest challenge I've dealt with in different backup technologies has been how the business wants to spend its money, right? Some companies are perfectly great with doing, a, would actually prefer to do an, an OPEX play on their uh, system and only pay for like a subscription-based, and others insist they want to spend capital on it and don't want the operating expense. So it would, you know, depend on the circumstance I'm in. And then you do your backups the way you do your backups, right? You back them up to death. <laughs> that's my new That's my new slogan. Back it up to death. Back it up to death. <laughs> you back them up to death. Back them up to death, man. Like you're like you're very life dependent on it, right? And and in the case of production, you're doing backups probably as 
granular as on a scene by scene or a shot by shot basis, right? Before you hand the shot off to somebody to play with, you take a copy of it so that if they decide, oh, I've done all of this work in it and it's crap, let me throw it away, right. you can give them back the original, right? And you do that with snapshots or however you're comfortable with the tool you're using, but you go down to that level and then you're also doing the bigger, you know, back up the whole world kind of thing as well. So you're preparing for you're preparing for individual work changes and for disasters. So it sounds like there's so many copies. How many copies do you think there are that float around throughout this entire process? Hundreds. I, I'm, I, I kid you not. By the time you're finished with the movie, you've got probably 150, 200 times the number of, of frames you need, right? You've, you just keep making copies and copies and copies. You've got more than you know, 100 copies of the movie. Because it's basically versions of the process, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it gives you the ability to do iteration and go back and look at things, right? The other the other challenge is and I will never forget because I've had I've had producers and, and visual effects supervisors look at me and say, Do you want the artist cleaning up the disc space or do you want the make in the movie? <laughs> <laughs> so typically you keep throwing storage at the process until it's finished. And then when it's finished, they all move on to something else and you have to figure out what you're going to do with all the stuff they don't care about. I know that at DreamWorks, because sequels were always built into the process, right? We, we didn't make, you know, Kung Fu Panda without the expectation that there would be a Kung Fu Panda 2 because that was Jeffrey Katzenberg's business model. We, we kept a lot of each movie's history online so that it could be used as reference by the next crew when they started up. So, so our, our pool would grow. We would have different performing levels of storage, right? So we may take, when, when we're working on Kung Fu Panda 2, we may take Kung Fu Panda and stick it on the slower stuff because we're not really doing heavy-duty stuff on it. But the artists working on 2 will want to go back and, and what, reference. What would you think about something like uh, Actifio, where you know, their whole thing is about managing those copies, but... There and and or minimizing the number of actual copies and giving you access. They're not the only company to do this, but giving you access to sort mm -hmm. of multiple views of the same data that you can work with with impunity, but not actually have physical copies. Do you think that would work for that model? If it could be integrated well into the workflow, right? Because remember, at the end of the day, you wind up creating this uh, portal that an artist connects to to look at what's available out there, right? It's not just tech guys on the back end. If it can be integrated well into the workflow. Yeah, the, the other question would, would be whether or not it would, if you actually are simultaneously working on all those copies, if the system could keep up with the performance requirements of that. Yeah. I mean, again, what happens is you wind up with people spinning up a lot of copies, doing a lot of stuff with it. I think that if you gave them a scenario where, say, for example, you spun up a snapshot and they were working inside that snapshot, and then if they decided they liked it, it becomes instantiated as, as real. And if it doesn't, they just let it go away and it disappears. That would probably be a great solution for a lot of the work that gets done. Um, if you again, if you could figure out how to integrate that kind of workflow into the um, into the pipe, would you assume that the storage that you bought for this purpose is this spinning storage or flash? It's going to be varying. Uh, it's going to be various, right? I think I'm going to have a good chunk of of solid state in there, but not all flash. 
No, not all of it. No, that'd be crazy. Un- until until solid state completely becomes as cheap, if not cheaper than than spinning disk, there's always going to be spinning disk because there's always going to be stuff that's less important. And so, for example, right, this whole idea that not all of the movies online to be worked on by artists at any given point in time, right? You may still need it near line for reference. I'm not going to leave it in. I'm not going to leave it in in really expensive solid state storage if I'm taking it down to near line. Right, I'm going to put it on something that's that's just on spinning disk, and then you can even go slower on, you know, disk speed and things like that if you wanted to. But tape would not be acceptable for that use case. I will not say that. I don't see why tape wouldn't be a, a possibility as long as there's an understanding that once you've moved it to that tier where it's on a tape-based file system, that the performance is, you know, it's going to take a while to get it back online. It's and the SLA. Yeah. Better. Yeah. Exactly. It's SLAs and what the expectation is, right? You wouldn't want to put something that's sitting out on a tape-based file system uh, up against a render farm of, you know, 25, 30,000 processors because you'll break everything. So it's interesting as you talk about these various tiers. So has life gotten better with SSDs and NVMe and all the rest in terms of the rendering performance use cases? Uh, yeah, I think it has. So the irony, my opinion, uh, the irony of of movie production and probably almost all creative uh, ventures out there that have real money to to back them is we never really use technology to save money. We use technology to iterate and give us greater creative control over the process, right? So instead of saying, I have this box and it's this big and I can make this much movie in this size box, right? As the box becomes more powerful, I don't not buy more material. I just buy a bigger box so I can add more stuff in and do more. Exactly. Keep pushing the envelope. Exactly. And and you see it in the product that's coming out, right? The 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 effects, the the quality of the movies get better and better and better because they're not just resting on their laurels. Hey, we've got a system and it's good enough. It's always, no, no, no. It could be better, right? It's always the CBB. <laughs> so that brings up an interesting point. So I know you talked about CBB for the creative side. Is there a CBB on the infrastructure side? Yeah, there is. I mean, there, there always is, right? We can always do better on some things, but it's not, it's easier to go back on the, on a, just a business side of things and make the argument that no, it's, it's not as cost justified, right? Because improving the speed of backups and improving the speed of, of bringing the systems back up in the event of an outage, right? If I spend a million dollars more building the backup system and it allows me to bring the business back online 24 hours faster, does that 24 hours justify the million dollars? You know what I mean? When I'm doing something on the creative side, that extra shot of creativity that goes into the process might actually put more butts in seats because it's a different kind of draw. So on the corporate IT side of things, it's a lot harder to say I'm going to spend more than I had originally planned for unless I can back it up with, uh, with you know, numbers, real, real-time numbers that explain why. We talked mainly about the production data and the post-production data. What about back office data? Do you do you in today's world? Do you even have a data center? For some, it really it depends on how how much you've embraced SaaS based applications and that kind of thing. Most of the companies that I 
I've dealt with in the last probably 10 years or so, they don't host their own email anymore. You know, they don't host their own uh, mm-hmm. um, Active Directory or identity management or all of that kind of stuff. It's all cloud-based or we're using SaaS-based services, which is, in a way, it's terrific, right? Because by doing it that way, if you have a disaster, you go to Starbucks and you log in and you continue working. The challenge, of course, is the part that I get sensitive about, and that is I can't, I don't control my data, right? If I, if I'm using Jira and Confluence to store my entire universe, and I'm using the cloud version of it, and something no. happens uh, to it, I don't, I can't say I have a copy, and that can be good or could be bad. It depends on on how you look at it. We kept. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm I'm a believer in you keep the things that you really care about close to you. So there were always certain pieces of data, a lot of it unstructured kind of stuff, maybe some VMs uh, that lived locally. In the case of any most, since most of the places I've been at in the last you know 30 years have been content creating places, content is almost always local, mostly because of latency issues, right? If I've got 25 editors sitting on Mac Pros uh, in the office cutting video to go up on a website or, or, you know, stuff like that. I can't put the storage array uh, up in Amazon and expect the, the local machine to get the performance it needs out of it. So there's some kind of a local, local array that's connected that they do the work on. And then I may migrate it out to a, um, um, a cloud source as a form of protection, right? That's the other thing about backups for me is backups are always typically a, from whatever your local data source is to a local cache source out to the cloud so that you've, you're covered both ways. And then depending on where in the life cycle of the data it is, you might want to burn it off into something that you can then feel comfortable sending off to um, a library or a salt mine or whatever so that it's there for posterity. Remember, a lot of the companies I've worked for care about their data 30 years from now. Right. It's it's we live in a weird world uh, in a lot of ways, especially the world that's e-commerce and business today's business focused. Right. If you're not under HIPAA laws and you're not creating a content that you're going to go back and remarket uh, generation after generation, you don't really care all that much about your data in five years. Right. It comes and goes. As soon as somebody is outside of the space where you're going to market to them again, you toss them away. As a matter of fact, the less data you keep, the better off you are because otherwise, you know, the CCPA comes along or, or GDPR comes along and it bites you. So I've always lived, and part of the reason why I have the prejudices that I have is I've lived in a world where, you know, Disney's going to re-release this movie in 10 years. So they're going to want to bring it back online. They're going to want to do something with it that brings it up to, you know, instead of the Blu-ray, the gelatinous cube that you plug into the side of your head now to watch uh, movies <laughs> um, and, and remaster it that way, right? And so I worry about not only how do I protect it for the long run, but how do I keep it relatively up to date so that when it gets to the long run, they can still access it. I, I totally get the wanting to have certain aspects still on local compute and local storage. Is there anything, is there any workloads that you would feel the need to have a physical server? No, I don't think so. I think I've finally, I've finally gotten to the point, Curtis, you'll be proud of me, where I'm willing to take my databases and, and, and put them on VMs. Took me a long time to get there. It took Oracle a long time to get there. <laughs> I don't, if you can, if, if you don't need the physical performance of a physical box, then don't bother. Just put it up on a VM. I know you had mentioned GDPR and CCPA earlier, right? And that is all coming up like right now, right? (laughs) So 
By the way, that's the California Consumer Privacy Act for those that yes. don't have this rolling off the off your Sorry, phone. sorry. Um, right. <laughs> it's going to uh, change a lot. I think I think it's the beginning of serious privacy laws in the United States Agreed. when it comes to data. But it's one of the things that, that I find the most interesting about it is it's not just a, like with, with uh, the European Union's GDPR, where you can just say, hey, I want to disappear off the internet, delete my account. And if you don't do it in a certain amount of time, I'm going to, government's going to take all your money away from you. It's a, hey, I want to know what data you have on me and how you monetize it. That's a really interesting aspect of that. Yeah, it is. It is. It's it's extraordinarily complicated for businesses, by the way, to have to comply with that, but they're all working very hard to get there. And I and I think that's going to hopefully change the way smart consumers realize how the internet is using them um, and maybe be better at the choices they make, right? Because, I mean... If you think about it, there's a lot of data that's going on out there and people are making money off of it. That's, you know, nothing's free, right? If, if you're not paying for it, then you're the product. <laughs> all right. Well, we got to we got to wrap this uh, this podcast up. We could talk all day, but uh, we have yeah, <laughs> one of us has to jump on a plane and one of us uh, needs to go look for a job. Yeah. So uh, speaking of which, I, I wanted to mention to our listeners, Jeff, is exploring opportunities. We'll do IT for food. <laughs> there you go. And uh, I, I can't recommend my my longtime uh, colleague here uh, enough. Uh, any data center would be lucky to have him. Uh, Jeff, I want to thank you for once again being on the podcast. This was a pleasure, Curtis. Thank you. And, and Prasanna, thank you. No, it's always fun. I do hope that the uh, crash I had in the middle will <laughs> won't affect we this recording. We kept talking in your absence, so we have stuff to fill in. I can't imagine. Yeah, we didn't even notice you were gone, Curtis. We didn't We didn't say anything particularly bad about you either. It was okay. I will hear the recordings. All right. Well, thank you to our listeners, and uh, make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss a beat and that you're always able to restore it all. isn't worth a spit finally i needed your backup you had a chance to fix it instead it's all jacked up see how i'll write on facebook about you don't underestimate the things that i will do there was a file but i deleted it too bad your backup system isn't worth a spit
fun Hoping that just for once it'll be completely done Maybe 